But uh, this morning we're in Matthew chapter 5, and don't forget this coming Saturday, for those of you that may have come late, we're, we're decorating the church at 10 in the morning. So Matthew chapter 5, we're, we're looking at verse 20 this morning. I just want to kind of read it in context, verses 17 to 20. I know we've been reading this for a while, so hopefully you've been, you have it down by now, but uh, Jesus is talking about the law here. And he says in verse 17, Do not think that I came to destroy the law and the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly, I say to you, heaven and earth pass away. One jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. We come to our text today, verse 20. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Father, we pray that you'd open our hearts to your word. I pray that you'd quicken our minds to hear what your word says, that we could understand it and apply it to our lives. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. I think the one doctrine, the one faulty doctrine that Jesus is attempting and does very well here to kind of confront in a very direct way is the false teaching of salvation by self-effort. A lot of people back then and even a lot of people today believe that somehow the more they do down here on earth, the more good they do, the more good deeds they do, that earns them their salvation. And you can see the danger in that. And all of Scripture, from the beginning to the end, Old Testament, New Testament, everywhere, contradicts that false teaching. That somehow you're going to get into heaven by what you do. Paul makes clear in the book of Romans, even Abraham, the father of the Jewish people, was saved by what? Faith. He was saved by faith, not by his works. See that in Genesis 15, 6 and Romans 4, 3. In Galatians, the apostle explains in Galatians 3, 22, that scripture has shut up all men under sin, that the promise of what? Faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. The Bible opposes this in every way. Salvation by self-effort. And yet, it continues today in some churches. In a lot of churches, in a lot of religions, in a lot of cults. It all boils down to what you do. Um, Turn over to Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18. In Luke chapter 18, Jesus, to kind of deal with this even on a more detailed basis, tells a parable. A parable is basically a a story with a a spiritual truth attached to it. And um, in in, in chapter 18, beginning in verse 9, it says that he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. He spoke it particularly to those who trusted in themselves. How often do you trust in yourself? How often do you look at your life and say, I'm I'm, I'm not doing too bad. I'm doing pretty good. Pretty talented person. Pretty gifted in a lot of different areas. And your head starts getting bigger and bigger and bigger. (laughs) It's a dangerous thing to trust in yourself. And in this, this story that he tells of a Pharisee and a tax gatherer, went to the temple to pray. And it says, two men went to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee, the other was a tax gatherer, a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself. Notice that. That's the idea that he's praying basically to be seen. Look at me, look at what I'm doing. And he says this, God, I thank you. That's okay so far. And he gets himself in trouble. That I am not like other men. You can see him looking down his probably long nose at those around him. Extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. So apparently he was standing right there next to him. 
And then he goes on and he lists his various deeds that somehow he thinks is going to get him into heaven. That was the mindset back then, as it is very much today. In verse 12, he says, I fast twice a week. That's a good diet. Fast twice a week, you'll probably lose some weight. I give tithes of all that I possess. So he begins to recite to God what he's doing. You ever done that? You ever been at a point in your life where you're just kind of beat up and maybe you're in a hard time and, and, and life isn't treating you the way you think it should? And you find yourself in a prayer meeting with God and you're talking to God and you're almost asking Him, why is this happening? And then you begin to recite. God, I go to church every Sunday. I try to make it to the care group during the week. I try to help people all week long. I'm a, I'm a good worker at work. I'm honest. I work hard. And we begin to recite all these things. And somehow we think that that's going to impress God. And it's almost as if God were informing God of our actions. If he, if he, as if He doesn't know already what's going on in our lives. God sees everything, beloved. He sees the good, the bad, and the ugly. Everything. And we all have some of that mixed in into our lives somewhere along the line. So he says, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. It's more than required, is what this guy's saying. He thinks he's very religious. He thinks that his religion somehow is going to bridge that gap between him and a holy God. And then in verse 13, he says, And the tax collector, standing afar off, Jesus tells this story, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, You ever see a little boy, a little girl who got in trouble? Maybe you were the one they had to come and apologize to. How often do they look you right in the eye and say, I'm sorry? Usually they come up and kind of kicking around and, you know, sorry, didn't mean to do that. You know, maybe they'll look at you once or twice. But why do you think that is? I think it's just because they're shy. I've seen totally outgoing children turn into a very shy when they have to go apologize to somebody. The reason is they're, they're, they're ashamed. And they should be for their actions. And that's what this shows. This tax gatherer is over there. He can't even lift his eyes to heaven is the idea. But he beat his breast, a sign of mourning. And here's what he said. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. See, he knew what he needed from God. He didn't need a pat on the back from God saying, good boy, not a boy, man. Keep up those good works. Yeah, you should try fasting three times a week and you know, get, maybe give a little more than your tithing. And you know, He didn't need to hear that from God. He wasn't looking to God for that. But here's what he was looking for from the God that he knew was holy and he wasn't. He said that he, after he beat his breast, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Be merciful to me. We know the difference between grace and mercy. Grace is God giving us something we don't deserve. Mercy is Him withholding something that we do deserve. And He asks for God's mercy because He realizes He deserves judgment from God. Not reward. Look at what he says in verse 14. He says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. I mean, you've got to stop and think about this picture. I mean, here you have this religious Pharisee. I mean, somebody that people looked up to. 
they were the model Jew. They were highly religious, moral, respectable in every way. They wore certain garments so you could spot them in a crowd. And then you had the tax gatherer. And there was nothing more despised, more hated than somebody who was a tax gatherer back then. Because this was one of your brothers, a fellow Jew, who basically sold out all of their morals to Rome and was willing to go and collect taxes, collect money from people who probably didn't have a lot of money to be given to Rome. And not only that, but usually they were crooked, so they would, they would collect the amount told to them by Rome, but then they also had to make a little profit. So if Rome said, hey, go take a 10% tax, they maybe did a 20% tax and they'd pocket the other 10. That's how they made the living. And they did very well at it. Because who's going to, they were really a representative of the Roman government. He didn't mess around with them. And so he extorted all he could from the people who were his brothers and his sisters, keeping for himself all these things that he didn't have to give to Rome. And you know what? He basically forsook everything that they had in common, their nationality, the social, the family, the religious loyalty. And he did it all for the sake of money. And so you had this despised person and this other Pharisee guy who was very much exalted, looked up to. And yet, Jesus said that despite the tax gatherer's sin, and it is sin, he's not excusing it. He's not saying, oh, this guy was a flowery great guy. You know, you just had the wrong impression of him. No, that's not true. How many times have we said that about somebody? Come across somebody and, and maybe it's a friend and, you know, you know, you kind of look at their life and they're a mess. You kind of point that out. And they say, well, you know, they're really not that bad. They're, they're really a good guy. They're just a little mixed up right now. See, that's the problem with our society. Everybody's a good guy. We don't understand what it means to be fallen, to be sinful, to be unholy in the presence of a holy God. We've lost that. And so we build ourselves up like this Pharisee, thinking that we're something that we're really not. Do you know that by the grace of God, only by the grace of God, every one of us sitting in this room deserves hell because of our sin. That's what we deserve. That's what we should get. That should be our wage. But we don't think of it that way. We think somehow that we're worthy of something more than that. We're worthy of heaven. I mean, we dress up, we go to church, we, you know, feed people, we help people, we, you know, we're, we help the church, we do whatever. And somehow we forget that, you know what, in the end we're still sinners. And we're still saved by His grace. We're not saved by what we do. And Jesus said that this tax gatherer, this person who was despised in society, his life was filled with treachery and sin, he would be justified by God. He is the one that's justified. He is the one that is made right before a holy God. Because of what? His penitent faith, his his. his Humility, his willingness to admit that, you know what, God, all I need is your mercy. Be merciful to me, a sinner. That's the first step of anybody's salvation. I don't care who you are. If you haven't come to a point in time in your life where you've looked at your life and you've looked at God and you said, okay, something doesn't match up here. Somehow, you know, I, I'm not on the same plane as God. God is holy. I am not. God is just, I am not. God is righteous, I am not. You can go right down the list. God is moral, I am not. And we all fall into that. We're all in that same boat together. We're all called sinners. For all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. The question is, what are you going to do once you realize that truth? Some of you this morning here maybe have not realized that truth. Somehow maybe you're still like the Pharisee, holding on to something that you think is good about yourself. The Bible said there's none good, there's none righteous. Not one on the face of the earth. 
And you can see where Jesus kind of flipped everything around by telling this parable. Because his hearers were probably looking at this Pharisee going, oh yeah, that, you know, that's probably what we're shooting for here, to be like that person. You know, that's a very dangerous thing when you seek to be like another human being. I don't care who they are. Because inevitably, inevitably, should we have role models? Should we have mentors? Sure, I'm not saying that. But when you look up to somebody so much, inevitably, somewhere along the line, that person is going to fail, that person is going to fall, that person is going to sin. And when they do, what are you going to do then? If that's where you're putting all your hope, that's where you're putting all your trust. See, it needs to be in the Lord. We need to follow the Lord with our whole heart, with our mind, with our soul, not other people. And so when Jesus explained through this parable that this tax gatherer, this sinner, really would be justified by God because of his faith, His faith in what? His faith in God's mercy. He was crying out for God's mercy. Whereas this other guy, this religious guy, he trusted in his own righteousness and his own works. And, and he clearly, basically, the idea is that he would be condemned. And see, Jesus is teaching that same thing back over in Matthew. He's teaching that same sort of righteousness that's exemplified by the Pharisees isn't sufficient to gain entrance into his kingdom. He's saying, if that's all you're trusting in, if you're just trusting in what you can do for me, God is saying, that's not going to cut it. Because you know what? You couldn't do enough to work your way to heaven. Even if you were able to, it still wouldn't be enough. And I think when his hearers heard Jesus tell this story, and even in, back in Matthew, when he went through the, the Beatitudes. I mean, just the way he starts it off. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. I mean, that doesn't sound like somebody who's going to, you know, come and redeem his people and all that. I mean, it sounds like somebody, well, what is this, this guy, a milk toast guy? Or what do you mean, poor in spirit, mourn, comfort, you know, all this stuff? I mean, where's the sword? When are we going to take over and, and get this thing taken out of Rome's hands? And we want somebody who's going to conquer, not somebody who's going to talk like this. Well, see, they didn't understand. That's really the way that God works. And to his legalistic, works-oriented hearers, they probably just had their minds blown when he taught this truth to them. Because what he was saying was, you know what? If the Pharisees, in that parable, he's saying if the Pharisees don't have enough righteousness to get to heaven, the question is this. Who can? Who can? Who can get into heaven? If these religious people can't get into heaven and they're doing all the right stuff, Jesus, you're... It's almost like you're saying nobody's going to get into heaven. Well, back in Matthew 5, we've seen Jesus show the, the preeminence of the law, the permanence of the law. Not, nothing is going to pass away. It's practicality to us, the pertinence to it. And today he looks at the purpose of it. What's the purpose of the law? He's obviously, in Matthew 5, still talking, in verse 20, about the law and the prophets. He's talking about the Old Testament Scriptures. And when he says that true righteousness exceeds the kind displayed by the scribes and the Pharisees, in verse 20, what he's saying is, whatever these guys did, they may have done some good things, but whatever they did, the scribes and the Pharisees, it wasn't enough. And that was the cream of the crop as far as the local religions of the day. You know, that's not too far from what we kind of fall into today. You know, I've, I've talked to Christians sometimes and 
you know, they'll talk about their Mormon friends. And basically, it always ends up that somehow, in the conversation, they're complimenting their Mormon friends for their dedication, for their hard work, for the sacrifice that they make. They go out two years riding these bicycles, walking around, I mean, you know, portraying themselves to be something they're not. Sad. You always hear about their family values and all these things. How they take care of their own and, and all that. But, beloved, all that may be good stuff. But they've missed the mark in a big way because they don't understand who the Messiah is. They don't understand who Jesus Christ is. They're all mixed up on that truth. So what are they trusting in? If they're not trusting in Jesus to save them, what are they trusting in? They're trusting in their own works. They're trusting in what will work for them. And we can go down the line of cults and different worldly religions that, that basically say the same thing. I mean, I grew up in the Catholic Church. To be a good Catholic, you had to go to Mass. You had to go to confession. You know, you had to be um, baptized as a baby. You had to be confirmed. You had to do all these things. And when I look back on it, I'm thinking, man, here I committed 18 years of my life to this church, and I still... If I would have died right then, I would have been in hell today. Because they didn't tell me the truth. Because they don't know the truth. That sounds harsh. But that's, that is the truth. They're trusting in their own tradition. They're trusting in their own set of rules and regulations. They've come up with their own way of salvation. And that's so much not different than what is, was happening in Jesus' day. See, the implied truth here in Matthew 5.20 is this, and it's there in your outline. The purpose of God's law was to show that to please God and to be worthy of citizenship in His kingdom. Here's what had to happen. More righteousness is required than anyone could possibly ever have or accomplish in himself. Ever. It's impossible. See, the purpose of the law was not to show what to do in order to make oneself acceptable. That's what we think sometimes. We think God gave the law so that we could keep it. No, He didn't. Because you can't. I heard somebody the other day on the radio. I think it was Glenn Beck. He was saying, I don't know where he's at with his faith, but you know, he claims to be a Christian, I think. And everybody said this. He said, yeah, that's why every day, something to the effect of, you know, I just have to keep the Ten Commandments. I was like, What? I have a problem with that. The purpose of the law was not to show what to do in order to make oneself acceptable. Really, it was to show how helpless and how sinful we really are. That's what Paul taught through the book of Romans. That's what Paul taught through the book of Galatians. And as the Lord pointed out to the Jews in his first beatitude, the initial step toward the kingdom of citizenship is what? Poverty of spirit. Being broken within yourself. And you know what? A lot of times when we share the gospel with somebody, we kind of skip over that. And we skip right to the, you know, hey, Jesus wants to make you happy. Don't you want to be happy in Jesus? Don't you want to have all your sins forgiven? Don't you want to have all this stuff? And so people respond to that message and they go, yeah, I'd like all that stuff. I'd like heaven. I'd like this. But they fail to understand that they're, they're not worthy of it. And they think if they do A, B, and C, well, all of a sudden, boom, I guess I've done these things. I've prayed this prayer. I've done this. Then, then all of a sudden, somehow, they're just miraculously, you know, they have all this stuff. But they skip the point of, you know what, I'm a wretched sinner. Be merciful to me, God, a sinner. Somehow that was skipped over in the little four laws or whatever. I mean, that's such an important point that we, we have to grapple with when we're sharing the gospel with people. Why would people want a Savior if they don't have to be saved? If they think somehow that by their good works, they're going to get into heaven. If that's the truth, then let's just all go out and do good works. See, we're not saved that way. 
That's what they thought in Jesus' day. That's what they thought. They, they, they didn't, weren't willing to recognize their total wretchedness, their total sinfulness, their total inadequacy before a holy God. They couldn't understand that. And so in verse 20, he gives two people here. He says, the scribes and the Pharisees, the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. You notice that, you know, it's not that they didn't have any. <laughs> it's not that everybody's just this horrible person that's out, you know, killing and raping and pillaging people. That's, that's not what it means. It means in the heart of hearts, we're sinners before God. not based on what we do. It's based on who we are. Well, who are these scribes? The earliest scribes are only found among the priests and the Levites. In Ezra 7.12, there's, there's one mentioned there. And, and basically, what the scribes would do is they recorded, they studied, they interpreted, and they often taught Jewish law. That was their role. That's what the scribes did. There were some scribes among the Sadducees, but most were associated with the Pharisees. And there was two different kinds of scribes back in, in Jesus' day. There was the civil scribe, and basically they functioned kind of like a notary does today. They were involved in various governmental duties, things like that. In Ezra 4.8, we find such a scribe. And then there was also not only the civil scribes, but there was also what was called the ecclesiastical scribes. And they devoted their time to study of the scriptures. And they came to really be the, the sole authority on the primary interpretation of the scriptures. And yet, Jesus made it plain over and over and over again. Even though they spent all this time in the scriptures, somehow they failed to understand what it taught. That's amazing to me. With all their exposure to God's Word, somehow they were superficially immersed in it continually. They missed the profound spiritual intent of what God's Word was saying. I've known people like that over the years. I mean, they know the Bible like the back of their hand. But you know what? They're missing it. They just miss it. It's like they don't see it. They know it up here. But somehow it hasn't worked its way down into their life and their heart yet. Well, the Pharisees, on the other hand, they were basically confident in their own system of righteousness. They came up with their own deal. They looked at God's law, if you remember, and they said, well, who could do this? You know, all these laws, all these, all these regulations, let's just make our own. So they started to create their own rules and regulations, as most false religions do. And they began to say things like, well, you know, you can't heal on the Sabbath. You can't do this. You can't do that. You can't carry a stick here or there or whatever. All this craziness. That's not in God's Word. That's the oral tradition of who they are. And they thought if they made it simple enough, then the, the common people could look at it and say, okay, well, today's Tuesday, so on Tuesday we can't do this. Remember growing up in the Catholic Church, you know, on Friday we couldn't eat meat. Okay. Chapter, verse, please. Nobody ever said that. You know, I mean, it's crazy. I remember growing up and you're going to confession every week. You're going into this little box. It's kind of spooky, actually. You go in there and you had like this grid there usually, or a curtain. Ours had like a little grid. And uh, all a bunch of little holes in it so you could hear and you'd hear the, the priest talking to the other guy, and you'd be, you know, you'd be sitting there kind of listening, and you'd want to hear it. You couldn't, but you'd just hear this muffled conversation going on. And then you'd hear him stop, and you'd hear the door close on the other side, and he'd turn to you, and he'd open up this little sliding door, and you couldn't really see him. You'd just kind of hear him and kind of maybe see an outline of his head there. And you'd say, Father, forgive me, for I have seen it's been six months since my last confession. And he comes back to me like this, because it was just all rote. And then he'd say something, and you know, and then I don't know what he said, but then you'd start to kind of tell him your sins. Well, I mean, you know, when I began to study the Bible, 
And I came to look at the Bible. I thought, wait a minute. Where does it tell us to go to this guy and confess our sins to him? And who is he to tell me what to do about it? It's just kind of weird. And I looked all through the Bible and I couldn't find it. Matter of fact, I found just the opposite. You know what I found? I found that there's only one mediator, one person between God and man. And guess what? It wasn't the Pope. It wasn't the priest. It was the Lord Jesus Christ. And you know what? I could go to Him directly. So I remember when I found all this out, and I went back to the priest, and I'm sitting in his study, kind of still intimidated, because, you know, in the Catholic Church, you just didn't go visit the, you didn't go talk to the priest about spiritual matters, usually. It was just, you went through all this ritual stuff, and then you went home and did what you did, and you came back the next week. There was kind of a breakdown in relationship there. But I remember sitting in his study, and I started asking these questions. Why do I have to come to you to confess my sin? Well, that's what the church believes. And I didn't know well enough to say chapter, verse, show me. I mean, I wasn't that bold. I wasn't even saved yet. But I said, well, why do we believe that? Well, that's, that's what we've kind of come up with over the years. And he began to explain it to me. Well, why do we pray to Mary? When the Bible says we shouldn't pray to anybody but God. Why do we? And I went through this list of things, and he had no answer. It was the same thing over and over and over again. Well, that's what the church believes, Steve. That's what the church believes, Steve. You know, just do this, do this, do this, and you'll be fine. And I walked out of his office going, you know, I mean, I'm not, you know, I don't have all my lights lit upstairs, but, you know, I, I was plain enough to realize something's fishy here. And I began to realize, why haven't you ever taught me what the Bible says? When I sit in church. Why was it always in Latin? I didn't know Latin. It'd be like me coming in here and talking to Swahili to you. And you're all sitting there with smiles on your voice. Then you get up and write a sermon. How would you know? Isn't that amazing? And yet it went on for years. And nobody dared question it. It's only when God turned the light bulb on upstairs and changed my heart that I realized, you know what? This system is broken. This, re this religious system that I've given 18 years of my life to is broken. And I'm sorry, but I don't want to be part of it anymore. I want to get to know my God. I don't, I, you know, I don't care much about this church stuff anymore. I want to get to know my God first and see what His Word says. And you see this, this difference here between the Pharisees of the day and, you know, they were the, the religious kind of elite. And nobody would dare question what they would say. And yet they were claimed to know the Word of God and yet they were blind to the meaning of most of what it said. They had this righteousness the scribes and Pharisees had a righteousness. It looked like righteousness. Well, what was it made up of? Well, first of all, you know, it was external because it differed from the righteousness that God had. See, God says we have to have righteousness and they had righteousness, but they had the right kind of righteousness. Well, what kind of righteousness did they have? They had external righteousness. They concerned themselves entirely with the external observance of the law and tradition of the day. It's all about what you do. They didn't care about your motive. They didn't care about your attitude. And it relates to my upbringing so well. I remember Saturday night or even Friday night with my family. You know, we're all sitting around the kitchen table. Everybody's drinking. Not me. I was too young. But they were all drinking, getting drunk, whatever. And then Saturday night, when they started Saturday night mass, we'd go to Saturday night mass or Sunday morning. And when we used to go to Sunday morning Mass, everybody get drunk Saturday night, and then you don't have to go get everybody out of bed for Mass, and we'd make our way in and take up a pew in church, and they'd all sit there like good Catholics and, you know, do the whole community thing and everything, and then leave. And then it would be the same thing next week. There was no accountability for our actions. It wasn't like the priest went up and said, boy, you guys seem like you had a hard night. You know, what, you guys drinking too much? Well, that was never said because they were probably drinking too. I mean, that's sad, but it's true. I've seen it. I had two sisters that were married. And, you know, when they got married, I saw the priest and his actions at our reception. And I thought, wow, this guy smokes? Holy mackerel. I mean, you know, he drinks to the point of getting drunk. There's something wrong here. 
I didn't know what it was because I was in a family filled with that kind of activity. But I thought for a religious person to do that, something's not right. Well, they were concerned back then about just external things. They didn't care about your motivation. They didn't care about your attitude. No matter how much they may have hated a person, if they didn't kill him, it was okay. They weren't guilty of breaking the commandment. No matter how much they may have lusted in their heart after another woman, as long as they didn't commit the act of adultery, it was okay. See, in Matthew 23, the Lord gives a graphic picture of these, the external character of that religion. In verse 25 of Matthew 23, says, You clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside they are full of robbery and self-indulgence. And before that, he said, Woe to you, hypocrites. And he was talking to the religious leaders of the day. And they saw nothing wrong with having evil thoughts as long as they didn't carry it out externally. They didn't think God would judge them for what they thought, but only for what they did. Well, the Word of God says that God knows the intents of our heart. He knows our motivation. We can't question somebody else's motivation, but God can. That's exactly the kind of righteousness that Jesus declared to be the worst kind of righteousness. It's this external act, this hypocrisy. In verses 25 to 31 of Matthew 23, he condemned all this external garbage, basically, because those who practice it were really... He, he, here's the, the terms he uses to describe them in Matthew 23, 25 and 31. He calls them thieves, self-indulgent, unclean, lawless, murderers, enemies of God's true spokesman. And Jesus showed in the Sermon on the Mount how that God's first concern is with the heart, with such things as anger, hatred, lust, not with just the outward manifestations of murder or adultery. He covers that. We'll be getting to that after Christmas, actually. But see, we have to come to terms with this. Hypocrisy cannot substitute for holiness. God's concern about religious ceremonies and all that stuff is the same. Jesus is soon to teach that if, for example, our giving, our prayer, and our fasting are not done humbly, out of a loving spirit, you know what? They don't count for anything. That's what he gets into in Matthew 6. Ritual can't substitute for righteousness. The scribes and the Pharisees were proud. As a matter of fact, it even says in Matthew 23, 2, that they seated themselves in the chair of Moses. <laughs> in other words, they were custodians and teachers of God's law. The law that gave to Moses. In Matthew 23, verse 3, he says, All that they tell you, do and observe. But then he says this, But do not do according to their deeds. For they say things, and what? Do not do them. On another occasion, he told the Pharisees, You are those who justify yourselves in the sight of men. But God knows your hearts. For that which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. He said that in Luke 16, 15. So it was, it's not that they didn't have any kind of righteousness, but their righteousness wasn't God's kind of righteousness. First of all, it was external. It was only what you saw on the outside. We've all met people like that. They're, they're kind of superficial. You know, they come up to you and they've got these plastic smiles and everything just looks so perfect in their life. And yet, inside, they're falling apart. Their family's a mess. Everything's falling apart. They'd never let you know that because they're so concerned about the external, they're unwilling to deal with what's in their heart. They're portraying something they're not. Secondly, the righteousness of the, the Pharisees was partial. The righteousness that the, the Pharisees practiced fell far short of God's righteousness because it was incomplete. In Matthew 23, 23, he talks about them uh, <clears throat> tithing out of mint and dill and cumin, and yet they weren't willing to, to deal with the weightier provisions of the law like justice and mercy and faithfulness. They looked at that and said, well, no, we can give up our little herbs and, and spices here, but we can't do this justice, mercy, and faithful stuff. And so they kind of wrote their own ticket. 
and total disregard for showing justice, mercy to other people, and for being faithful to their in their hearts to God. And yet they were so concerned about how much mint you were going to give to God. It's, it's ridiculous. They were much concerned about making long, pretentious prayers in public, but had no idea about had no problem with taking a widow's house away from her. This didn't matter. This is the way it is. Do you ever, you know, sometimes we think when we're praying that we're in this mindset we're trying to impress God. And then it gets one step further. Sometimes I think when we're praying, we get in the mindset we're trying to impress whoever is there with us. I've heard people say to me, well, you know, yeah, you know, I, I, I wish I could pray in public, but I just, you know, I just can't. Why not? Well, it just doesn't, you know, doesn't come out right. Who cares? Don't you think God knows what's in your heart? God knows exactly what's in your heart. Who cares if the other people in the group, you don't make any sense to them? That's not not important, really. You're not there to pray to them. You're not talking to them, right? We're talking to who when we're in prayer? We're talking to God. Sometimes I think we're talking to the other people in the circle. need to be aware of that. Disregard these things like justice, mercy, faithfulness, and they thought that by going out in public like this Pharisee did and lifted his, pumped out his chest and lifted his eyes to heaven and said, oh, thank God I'm not like these other Can you just see him doing that in his flowing robe? Everybody's standing back going, oh, look, the Pharisee's praying. It was an external righteousness. It was partial. It didn't, didn't meet the bill. It wasn't enough. I think it's impossible to, that merciful, to be merciful, just, and faithful without God changing your heart. There's no way that we can accomplish that without His divine intervention in our life. See, being a Christian isn't about just coming to church and doing religious things. It's not about that. It's so much more than that. It's God coming to you and showing you that you're woefully inadequate to save yourself and that you might need His help. (laughs) And you might want to ask Him for His help. You might want to say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's a prayer here. That's That's a heart He'll change. And when He changes it, all of a sudden, all that external stuff becomes internal. All that partial righteousness that you had before you thought more highly of yourself than you thought should have, all of a sudden all that partial stuff becomes fulfilled because it's God's righteousness you have. They also redefine God's righteousness. They also redefine God's righteousness. They were kind of like the liberal theologians of our day today. They took biblical terms and they redefined them to suit their own human perspectives and their own philosophy because they thought, well, there's no way that we could do this God thing the way He wants us to do it. So let's rework everything and we'll come up with, you know, we won't call sin, sin anymore. We'll just call it mistakes. That sounds better. You know, we won't want to call hell, hell because that may offend somebody and to tell somebody that they're going to hell, that's very offensive, so we can't tell anybody that. And rather than saying somebody's sinful, let's just say that they have a low self-esteem that they need more I mean, it's crazy what the church has bowed to in our society today. Even the commandment of Leviticus 11.44, it says, Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. That's what God said. The Jews of the day interpreted that not as a call to pure attitude of heart, but as a requirement to perform certain rituals that they came up with. So to be holy is to set yourself apart from society and do all this ritualistic stuff. When you do all this stuff, then somehow you're made special. They knew they could not be holy in the same way God is holy. But they had no desire to be either. They didn't really care. So they basically changed the meaning of holiness. And they said, hey, Holiness to us is just if you do these religious things, then you will be holy. We 
can't make ourselves holy. What are we thinking? There's no way that could ever happen. That's something that God has to do for us. So they redefined the righteousness. Also, it was a righteousness that was purely self-centered. It was completely self-centered. It was produced purely for the reason of giving themselves glory. That's why they came up with this whole list of things, and that's why the Pharisees followed the rules and regulations so much so they could turn to everybody and say, see, the reason I got this special robe and the reason I'm a Pharisee is because I keep these parts of the law and I keep them perfectly. And everybody would go, ooh, ah. Look at them. They're more holy than we are. No, we don't do that. <laughs> or we do that, I guess I should say, more often than not, even in our Christian churches today. Somehow, somehow, and I don't know if it's the way it's communicated, I don't know if people want you to think this or whatever, but somehow people think that by going from here to here, something happens. People think that. Just by going from here, two steps up, boom, bigger churches have big more steps. So, you know, but still, the idea is, you know what? We're all in this together. I, I am frustrated with sin in my life just like you're frustrated with sin in my life. Thought you'd catch that. Because we all know you guys don't sin, right? Only the pastor. No, but stop and think about it. We got this thing reversed somehow. And we think that, you know what? It's, it's kind of like we have to come to terms with it. We have to realize that we're all sinners. We all need the grace of God. Now, that doesn't give us an excuse for sin in our life. You know, that's, that's clearly taught in God's Word. We're to be held accountable and we're to confess our sin when we know there's known sin there to a, to a holy God who's willing and faithful to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, the Bible says. That's why we don't shun when we sin. We don't go and run and hide like Adam and Eve did. The Bible says that we're to go to Him, that we're to go to our God and say, Hey, Father, I'm sorry, I sinned. I thought this thought, I did this deed, whatever it was, you know, and I thank you for your forgiveness. And he's more than willing and able to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But see, they were self-centered in their righteousness. Their righteousness was basically there to build them up. And they looked for approval. And the, the affection of men. It's so important to realize at the end of the day when you lay your head on the pillow, you know what matters? What matters is not what your co-workers at work thought or people in your family thought or whatever relatives or friends that you came None of that matters. What matters is what did God think of what you did today? That's what matters. That's who you're going to be held accountable to. If you get that straightened out, everything else just kind of is like gravy. It's pretty easy when we're accountable solely to God, because we are. See, the godly person, the Beatitudes taught us, is broken about his sin. He's mournful over the wicked condition of their life. And it's so important that we come to that point. We don't buy into the religiosity of today. We have to come to terms with who we are and we have to realize that, you know what, we shouldn't have any confidence in ourselves, what we can do or what we can... But we have to have confidence in what God can do for us. Only through God's righteousness that's given to us out of His grace and mercy are we ever saved. But see, but a person who's righteous in his own eyes, they see no other need for righteousness. They don't see any need for salvation. They don't see any need for mercy or forgiveness or grace. Because you know what? In their mind, they think that they got it covered. <laughs> They're surely mistaken, but that's what they think. Just when Jesus came and He offered them grace, what did they do? They rejected it. They rejected it. They wanted to rule their own lives. They wanted to determine their own destinies. They, they didn't want to submit to this 
so-called king, the Messiah, who wasn't going to free them from Rome's bondage and do all this stuff. They had other ideas. Romans 10.3, it says, Not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. We need to subject ourselves today to God's righteousness, not our own. But what is God's righteousness? We saw what the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees is or was. What is the righteousness that God requires? Well, he says there in verse 20, that unless your righteousness exceeds or surpasses the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. That word is used of a, of a river that's overflowing its banks. It's emphasizing that which far exceeds what is normal. I remember one time, it was back, I think in 1974, we had um, hurricane uh, back in Pennsylvania. Johnstown was flooded and everything. And I remember our pond just filled up I mean, beyond full. I mean, we had like a foot of water coming over the dike down to our little town there in Mentors where we lived kind of on the outskirts of town. There's a road to go in front of our pond and then there's houses on the other side of the road, these little community. And I remember the neighbors standing out in front of the dike and we're down there trying to figure out what to do because if it broke, the houses are going to go bye-bye. Pretty big pond. And, and so brother and myself and a couple other brothers were standing down there and I'll never forget... My brother Bob, who's now passed away with the Lord, but I remember him standing there and the neighbors are going, is it going to break? Is it going to break? And they're standing right, right, right on the other side of the road. And my brother, who wasn't a believer at the time, says, well, you know what? If it breaks, you're in a heck of a place to be standing. He didn't say heck. And they kind of scratched their heads and they ran in their houses. Well, this idea here surpasses, is the idea of a river overflowing its banks. In other words, our righteousness, the righteousness that God requires for us to go to heaven, it has to overflow. It has to be more than what is normal. The Lord requires, first of all, genuine righteousness and real holiness that exceeds anything human. This isn't something that we can go home and try real hard and somehow we're going to squeeze it out of our lives. It's not going to happen. The only way that it will ever exist in a heart of human being is when God redeems that heart. That's the only way. When the inside is beautiful, outward beauty is appropriate. But without inner beauty, outward beauty is basically a sham, if you think about it. In Psalm 45.13, the psalmist wrote, The king's daughter is all glorious within. And then it says this, Her clothing is interwoven with gold. Why is that? Because her heart was glorious within. God has always been concerned, beloved, first and foremost, with inner righteousness. He's not concerned about all this external stuff that we call religion. He's concerned about what goes on in our heart. In 1 Samuel 16, 7, when Samuel was ready to anoint Jesse's oldest son, Eliab, and to be Saul's successor, the Lord said this, do, do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature, because what? I've rejected him. For God sees, not as man sees. For a man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at where? He looks at the heart. Now, ladies, that doesn't mean that, you know, you can go home today and say, hey, the pastor says I don't have to, you know, take care of myself anymore. You know, who cares what I look like? I'm not saying that. You know, if you look better with makeup, man, pile it on. Whatever it takes. See, God not only requires inner righteousness, but He requires perfect righteousness. Perfect righteousness. Matthew 5.48 says, Therefore you are to be what? Perfect. As your heavenly Father is perfect. See, to be qualified for God's kingdom, <laughs> we must be as holy as the King Himself. You know that? To be part of God's kingdom, to be a citizen of God's kingdom, you have to be declared as holy as the King Himself. See, the standard isn't how holy can you be. The standard is perfect holiness. The standard isn't well, how much righteousness can you kind of 
work up here in this life. No, you have to have perfect righteousness. The standard's so far above and higher than even the most self-righteous person. We can't even dare to claim that we possess it or that we could even work towards it. That's the kind of righteousness that God requires. And you might be sitting there this morning thinking like the disciples thought in Matthew 19.25. Well, wait a minute. Then, Pastor, who can be saved? (laughs) If you require this perfect righteousness, if God requires this perfect righteousness, and you're saying none of us are perfect, we're all sinners, how can we be saved? That's what his disciples asked in Matthew 19.25. And the only answer is the one Jesus gave on that occasion in verse 26. You know what he said? He said, with men, this is what? Impossible. But with God, all things are possible. In other words, with men, you're never going to get there. If you try to do this on your own, you're never going to get there. I don't care how many churches you join. I don't know how many t- care how many times you pray a day or how long you fast or how many people you help. or whatever. It's not going to get you to the perfect righteousness that God requires. But with God, all things are possible. See, the one who demands perfect righteousness, you know what he does? He realizes you're never going to come up with this on your own. So you know what? I'm going to give it to you. I'm going to give it to you. Kind of like once in a while when grandkids are down, I'll take Mason in the backyard and play baseball. You know, wiffle ball, what kind of thing. I don't go out there and, you know, okay, Mason, line up. You know, hold your mouth this way and go out there, you know, the, the distance that it is from the mound to the, the home plate and, and get a hard ball and wind up and whip the ball at him and say, hit it! You know, I don't do that. Take a light little ball and maybe toss it up in the air and maybe he'll hit it, maybe he won't. But it doesn't matter. I realize that really he's never going to, at that age, be able to, you know, just boom, you know, every time. He's not going to be able to attain to that. So what do I do? I kind of, I kind of help him along. That's what God does with us. He gives us this righteousness that we could never ever attain to. The one who tells us of the way into the kingdom, he himself is the way. There's no other way. John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. I remember when I shared that with the priest. <laughs> My brother told me, read this verse to him. I said, okay. And I went into the priest and I said, you know, you're saying that, you know, to get to heaven I've got to be a Catholic and I've got to do all this stuff. And here's what the Bible says, right? John 14, 6. And I told him, well, yes, it does say that. And he had no answer. Because he was caught up in his tradition. See, the king not only sets the standard of perfect righteousness, but will himself bring anyone up to that standard if they're willing to enter the kingdom by the king's terms. See, unfortunately, today we live in a world where we want to do it our own way. Have it your way. Do it your way. And so we, go, we take that over to God and we say, you know, I know what your word says, but you know what? I want to do it my own way. Galatians 2.16 says, A man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. Since by works of the law shall no flesh be justified. To be justified means to be made righteous. That's what that word means. It means to be made righteous by Christ. He's the only way to become righteous. Don't trust in your own works. You'll 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 be sorry in the end. Romans 3, 21 to 22, it says, Now apart from the law of righteousness of God has been uh, manifested, being witnessed by the law of prophets, even the righteousness of God through what? Faith, Jesus Christ, for all those who believe. See, faith has always been God's way to righteousness. And somehow the scribes and the Pharisees, the experts of the Old Testament, should have known that above all other people, but they missed it. Paul even tried to remind them, in, in Romans 4.3, he was talking to his Jewish leader, readers in Rome, and he says, For what does the Scripture say? And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as what? As righteousness. It doesn't say that he worked for it. it doesn't say that he had to you know, do a dance around the bush for it. Nothing. It says that it was reckoned to him as righteousness. He 
recorded from the book of Genesis, earliest book of the, the Old Testament. The first patriarch, the first Jew, was saved by faith, not by works. Even talks about circumcision in verse verse eleven of that of that text, and he says Abraham received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of of faith, which he had while uncircumcised. He might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised, that righteousness might be reckoned to them. The uncircumcised includes those before as well as after Abraham. He was the father of the faithful, but he was not the first of the faithful, because in Hebrews 11, verses 4 to 5, we see that by faith, who? Abel offered a, to God a better sacrifice than Cain. By faith he did this, through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous. And by faith, Enoch was also taken up that he should not see death. And he was not found because God took him up, for he obtained the witness that before his being taken up is now pleasing to God. It was also by faith in verse 7 that Noah found salvation. And you go on and you go on and you go on. See, it's by faith that we have our faith in Christ. It's not by what we do. The purpose of Scripture, the purpose of the law, was to show us our inadequacy to save ourselves. The righteousness God requires of you and of me, God also gives it to us. He gives it to us willingly. If we don't deserve it, we can't earn it, we can't accomplish it, we can only accept it. And when he offered himself for sin, Christ condemned sin in the flesh in order that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. God gave the impossible standard and then himself provided its fulfillment. The writer of, the writer of uh, Hebrews also says the same thing. But I think it's important. Oh, you got a cough drop? Okay. But I think it's important that we, we realize that even Paul, okay, in Philippians 3, 4 to 6, he says, if anyone else has mind to put confidence in the flesh, what's he say? I far more. Circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of the Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, he understood what they were all about. As to zeal, you know why you can't question my zeal? Because I persecuted the church before I became a Christian. That's what he's saying. I was killing Christians before I was one. Because I was committed. I totally believed in my false religious system. As to the righteousness which is in the law, I was found blameless. But when the apostle confronted, was confronted by Christ's righteousness, he was also confronted by his own sinfulness. And when he saw what God had done for him, he saw that what he had done for God was worthless. <laughs> he looked at it and he said, you know what? Whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and may be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Father, we thank you this morning that we can come to this place in your word. Lord, we know that this righteousness that you're talking about here, we, we can't possess it on our own. It's not something that we can work up. It's not something that we get if we join the church or we get baptized or we say prayers all day long. It doesn't come that way. It comes by your divine appointment. And Lord, you willingly give it to those who cry out to you and say, be merciful to me, a sinner. God, give us a refreshed view of ourselves. Help us to understand what you mean when you call us sinners, that we need your grace, that we need your mercy. Help us not to think more about ourselves than we ought. Father, the truth is those who insist on coming to God in their own way and in their own power 
Unfortunately, they will never reach you. Because the end of verse 20 says, they shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. No church, no ritual, no works, no philosophy, no system can bring a person to God. Only you can. Through your grace. And I pray today, those who are gathered here, if they understand that and they come to faith in Christ, help them not to grow haughty. Help them not to grow prideful in their faith. Help them to wake up every morning realizing that if it wasn't for your grace, we'd be lost. We'd be doomed to an eternity in hell apart from God. A place filled with torment and darkness. It's not a place where you go and party with all your friends. That's not what the Bible says hell is. You're totally alone. It's a horrible place. No one should ever want to go there. And God, you provided a way out. Help us never to forget that by your grace you've given us that passageway to new life in Christ. Lord, if there's anyone here today who's yet to put their faith, their trust in you, Lord, I pray that they would take a lesson from the text gatherer that we looked at this morning. And that they would cry out to you with a sorrowful heart, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I don't understand everything the pastor said this morning, but I do understand one thing, that I am a sinner, and I do need your mercy, I do need your grace. And I'm asking you for it this morning. Show me the way to you. Help me acknowledge Christ for who he is. Allow me to acknowledge him as the Lord of my life and my Savior. We pray this in Jesus' precious name.